Hi again, Michael. This is the fourth time we are speaking uh, on a podcast uh, where we initially discussed Turkey about a little bit more than six months ago and then widened the scope to discuss the uh, Syrian situation since then, uh, actually in a position where we need to focus even broader and, and you will probably start somewhere else where, when you want to give a, an update on the situation. Uh, why are we doing this? Well, uh, for the Royal Swedish Academy of War Sciences, where you are the chair of the security policy department and I'm the deputy, we have been uh, working over the last year on the southern dimension of European security. And we are preparing a report which will be discussed in a symposium in the Academy in the late uh, February. Uh, we are uh, likely to continue that work in a broader setting, also looking at the eastern, western and northern dimensions of security later during 2020 and uh, finalizing with uh, a report in, for 2021. Why do we do this? Well. Uh, southern dimension sometimes is, uh, is regarded as a little bit less uh, fundamental for Swedish and European security. Uh, this view is not held uh, since a long time ago uh, by southern states in the region. But it's um, in the security policy establishment often, and particularly when you talk about defense issues, you often tend to, to see it as a second range. Uh, second uh, level uh, set of questions. And um, of course, when we started, uh, produced the first report in this context in early uh, 2019, uh, this was still, I think, a widely held assumption also in the Swedish establishment. Uh, and uh, we started alerting about the risk of a more crisis. Uh, uh, also to be dealt with uh, on the top level by leaders, not only in the United States, Russia, uh, and in the region, but also in Europe. And I think this has come increasingly true as the year 2019 continued. We discussed uh, in the early summer, in our first podcast, the situation in, between Turkey and the US, for instance, in Syria. But now we are broadening the discussion and we have come into <coughs> certainly into Iran, Iraq, uh, coming back to Israel all the time, and now also Libya. And you, as a former Swedish ambassador to Turkey in the late 90s, and then picking up uh, the dossier again after retirement uh, uh, from 2012 onwards, you have been consistently following uh, the region, and uh, you have been appearing in endless numbers of discussions uh, in Sweden and elsewhere on these topics. So where would you want to start today? Uh, thank you, uh, Lars-Erik. Uh, it is uh, increasingly and incredibly eventful the new year, especially uh, in uh, Iran, also frankly in Libya. So uh, if you don't mind, I would like to start with Libya. Because there, there I see a lot of very both the tricky and uh, and ominous and challenging developments taking place as we speak. And can I interject there? I mean, it's incredible when you see on the television what is happening with meetings in Moscow, etc., between the various uh, leaders, 
And I think most people, if you would have a quiz, wouldn't have a clue what's, what's actually happening. So even the basic situation, who is supporting whom and for what reason, and who is opposing whom for what reasons, I don't think is, is known to the general pop. Well, it's, it's understood fully by very, very few, if anyone. So it's, it's really complicated and fast moving. I mean, the meetings in Moscow is one more um, measurement of the importance of Russian diplomacy as it extends throughout the Middle East and North Africa, among, among, other, among other directions, making EU-Russia dialogue on uh, all these issues uh, ever important. And then, of course, there is the US and the various question marks there. Now, what happened in recent uh, weeks uh, in Libya, over Libya, uh, has been uh, a chain of developments where the standoff throughout the autumn between an embattled DNA regime, government of national uh, accord in Tripoli, being under siege by the eastern Tobruk-based other side of Libya under the military leadership of General Hifter or Haftar, there are different uh, ways of uh, pronouncing his name, and there has been a tendency for a lineup between those that uh, that those few that support the Tripoli government, although that government is uh, uh, internationally recognized, uh, but uh, more and more thinly supported, really. And on the other hand, the other side, uh, General Haftar who has been supported by neighboring Egypt, there are a number of countries, and also Russia. And in that context, only only physical. Yeah, so can I continue? The development was such that an offensive on the part of General Haftar with those supporting forces, and there are, there's also mentioned internationally that uh, that the EU countries are split on this, with the Italian government uh, more closely associated with the Tripoli government, but France uh, more inclined to support uh, General Haftar, so there is a division there also. There was a standoff uh, when the uh, offensive by General Haftar was halted at, in the outskirts of Tripoli by means uh, also of support from Turkey. Turkey supply military equipment, uh, drones, etc. So there was a tendency for this uh, the situation militarily to to be halted uh, at the outskirts of Tripoli, and then uh, uh, Turkey decided to respond to a trend whereby Russia increased its support for Al Haftar. It supplied a number, as many as uh, a thousand. Wagner Company mercenaries uh, like snipers and other functions in support, enhancing the offensive capacity of General Haftar, whereas Turkey responded and at the end of the year it announced it had uh, parliamentary support, although it is very controversial inside the inside Turkey uh, to have another military presence by Turkey uh, in, a, in a foreign country, in addition to what they already has in Syria. So Turkey decided to do th two things. Uh, it responded to the, uh, the trends in Libya by announcing a readiness and willingness 
if so requested by Sarai in Tripoli to supply troops concretely militarily supporting the Tripoli government. Uh, oddly, therefore, ending up in, a, op, on, in an opposite camp in Libya to that of Russia, with whom, as we all know, uh, Turkey is closely cooperating over Syria and the various issues, especially the drama of Idlib in Syria. So uh, that uh, uh, was a trend throughout the autumn. And of course, everyone was asking, so what, what does that mean for the US? What does it mean for the EU and other countries when there was this trend of Russian and Turkish intervention into the Libya crisis? And Libya, after all, is very sensitive for Europe because of the proximity and the refugee issues, etc. And uh, to the surprise of many, in those meetings you mentioned in Moscow and elsewhere, uh, there was a decision by a joint decision by Turkey and Russia to seek a ceasefire arrangement, such that many were talking about uh, a similarity to the situation in Syria, where, where Russia and Turkey, although very split on the basic issues, still can cooperate. But, uh, and then came uh, yesterday's announcements that uh, the attempts to establish a ceasefire. Uh, had failed. Uh, it was not possible in the end, even for the might, might of Russia and Turkey jointly in this case, to persuade General Haftar to accept a ceasefire. And I, I guess that this, uh, the reason for that is simply that he wouldn't uh, like to be halted in his attempts to conquer Tripoli and therefore become the, the, the only leader. And for Turkey, this was a big disappointment because having a ceasefire arrangement with Russia, cooperating again with Russia, would have saved, saved Turkey's presence in, in Libya uh, in a way, and, that, and the importance of that in turn uh, was linked to the, to the other agreement between the Tripoli government and Turkey, namely on the maritime borders in the eastern Mediterranean. A counter move from Turkey to the moves by other countries uh, employed in, engaged in in gas exploration in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, there being a cooperation between Israel, uh, Greece, uh, Greek, Cyprus, also Egypt uh, on the one side and, and uh, Turkey on the other, although Turkey is a, is a main literal state in that area. So there are many different trends and aspirations and conflict patterns emerging, focusing on Libya. Uh, what you're just moving into now, is an area which I think most people uh, who are not specialists in the region have uh, not really, they don't have the big strategic picture, so to say. Actually, what you have been de developing is a notion of five or six major conflict dimensions in the region, of which the East Mediterranean is one. Uh, can you can you can you give give us the idea of that because I think that is not very well known but still of Im great importance not least uh, for our industrial and economic and trade actors in Europe. Mm. I mean, one of one of the points of departure for this is uh, the traditional economic links between Turkey and Libya, uh, for example, huge Turkish firm investments in Libya that were somehow destroyed by the events uh, ousting Gaddafi at the times. Uh, you have the uh, 
the old simmering conflicts in the Eastern Mediterranean over Cyprus, the still divided Cyprus, and the constant disputes over the Aegean with the unsolved issues between Greece and, and Turkey. So you've had this, and you have had this sort of a frozen situation in a way, in that area, uh, with constant uh, UN attempts to uh, break the deadlock over Cyprus, etc., and to have the parties uh, uh, in the Aegean cooperate. And then you have the refugee aspects uh, covering all this. Then you have the developments uh, in recent years of important uh, hydrocarbon findings in the Eastern Mediterranean. On Israeli in Israeli uh, economic zone waters and around Cyprus have become an important dynamic factor, making uh, freezing of the various subconflicts uh, more difficult. Frankly, so you had a trend whereby uh, an emerging cooperation between the non-Turkey states involved, uh, meaning Greece, uh, Greek Cyprus, Israel, also Egypt, tending to cooperate. Uh, jointly with some EU support, because Greece, after all, and Greek Cyprus are, after all, EU members, but tending to isolate Turkey uh, in, in that process. So you had the element of confrontation there. Uh, Turkey, of course, uh, in claiming that you cannot exploit for the purposes of richness waters that are still and economic zones, exclusive economic zones, you, you have to make a, create a solution first and then you can decide how should the parts in the Cyprus conflict cooperate and have joint ownership over, the, I mean, all these uh, things which exemplify that Turkey is a little bit alone because Turkey still is the only country uh, that has recognized uh, Northern Cyprus statehood. Uh, so you have this development with the, uh, the findings and then you have the tendency for ganging up, uh, if I may put it this way, among the other states, rather than there uh, being sought a solution with Turkey uh, concerning these developments. And then you have had a trend whereby Turkey uh, escorts its own drilling ships into disputed waters. And then, of course, that provides for an element of uh, militarization of the issues at stake there for also political cooperation between the uh, non-Turkey states and plans to get to build a pipeline to transport Israeli-based oil all the way to the European market. Uh, and that, uh, of course, was uh, contradicted by this Turkish initiative now with the deal with Libya or the Tripoli government in Libya. So you have that policy line cr crossing the, crisscrossing the, uh, the, uh, the pipeline uh, intended and the organization built in order to build to uh, uh, promote that and the US has tended also to be in support of that side of these these disputes and then on the other side there is Russia needing to be able to uh, to reach uh, militarily and economically uh, its uh, basis in Syria Another another line on the military geopolitical map with the, the transport line from Crimea to Syria and then the uh, med uh, line from transporting gas from Israel and then Turkish interests involved in this with this uh, Libya link. So it's incredibly uh, dynamic right now and it is uh, only just starting to be 
militarized, but as such deeply worrying, of course, because it adds one other conflict dimension to the region. Right. So, so when people think about the Cyprus issue, they think about the two parts of Cyprus mainly, and possibly also then the conflict between Turkey and Greece. But what you are saying here is that we are also seeing actors from the south, uh, Israel, Egypt, Libya, coming into the picture as well as the strategic dimension of, of Russia and the United States and of course the European Union. So that gives another um, complexity to the whole picture, uh, which uh, uh, has not yet, as you say, been totally militarized, but uh, has a, an unsettling potential of developing into something uh, very, very difficult given the, the enormous uh, interest involved. Yeah. Now it adds one more uh, dimension of complexity which can only provide for a more, more difficult and more demanding uh, diplomatic handling, diplomatic and geopolitical handling by the various parties. Uh, crying out for cooperativeness rather than competition and conflict. So you have already, uh, in earlier podcasts, uh, more or less in detail, discussed uh, the Syrian situation and Turkey's involvement with that. And, and of course, the, the uh, call by Syria now to, to, uh, for refugees to, to leave or people to leave the uh, embattled zones uh, in, in Syria is another uh, warning signal of the situation. How would you see the risk that the Turkey... Europe deal will uh, be in danger as it is now when, 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 with the uh, migration um, mm. situation. Mm. Uh, can I first add to the, on the Libya situation that, uh, of course, uh, there is a plan, but maybe that plan has now been uh, overtaken by events uh, for Germany, for Berlin to host a conference on the Libya situation. Uh, it was supposed to be on the 19th of January, uh, which is uh, very soon. Uh, we'll see if it really uh, takes place, but it shows that uh, Germany too has, a, has an interest here diplomatically. It's not just uh, Italy or France and uh, European countries for obvious reasons of, uh, of peace. Uh, but uh, mentioning Germany, of course, Germany is also a main, main player in the, uh, on the migration issues uh, pertaining both to EU-Turkey relations as such and the 19, 2016 deal and its uh, survivability and then also linked further to the refugee crisis uh, emerging or, or having been built in, in Idlib in, in Syria uh, where there is now again a, a ceasefire uh, agreed between Turkey and Russia. Uh, very few people uh, believe that this is a lasting thing because the, uh, the situation there continues to be one where Russia and Iran are going after the uh, jihadist uh, rebels in that area. There is also the Turkish-Assad relationship, which is uh, still vulnerable. Although in Moscow, there was the first uh, ever discussions in a long time between Turkish and Syrian intelligence chiefs about the situation there. So things are moving slowly and uh, very difficult to foresee. In the case of Europe, of course, uh, should there be uh, an enormous explosion of, of migrants all, for all the walls in the world existing there, 
that they would swell into Turkey and Turkey would panic and open gates and then, then God knows what will happen. Angela Merkel is very much uh, involved in this and there will be meetings with with Erdogan and others about this in the very near future. Uh, so, and then uh, you still have the uh, Israeli-Iranian uh, conflict on Syrian soil and it's a lot to say there. I'm slightly and pleasantly surprised that things there haven't been more dramatic because after all there is a government crisis in Israel and that could be a temptation for for action on and I know that the, the Israeli defense chief has been saying calling war with Iran in in uh, Syria to be almost inevitable so we really have to be focusing on what happens there but nothing much new since we spoke last many people uh, have got the understanding that there is some sort of collusion between Turkey and Russia on the strategic level. But what you have described now is they're both on, when it comes to, to, to Libya and uh, of course when it comes to Syria, uh, Russia and Turkey are, are acting in a very different way and supporting different people. Um, although Russia is trying to mediate somewhat in, in Syria, it is still is, is essentially supporting the Syrian regime. So, overall, what would you say is the Turkish-Russian relationship? Uh, there has been an element of Turkey seeking to balance over-dependence on the US and on NATO with closer links to Russia as a balancing act, uh, seeking a regional predominance pre or preeminence, if you like. So that, that's part of it, the clear link between approach to uh, Russia as compensation for more complicated re relations with both the EU and the US and therefore also NATO. Uh, then there is a concrete uh, uh, military aspect and related to uh, Turkey's decision to acquire uh, S-400 uh, uh, air defense systems. It's a very controversial thing uh, because uh, according to NATO standards or NATO judgments, uh, uh, countries uh, having S-400s and maybe also S-500s after that, the most uh, up-to-date uh, versions, uh, makes it impossible for that same countries to also have the F-35 fifth generation planes. Uh, so the standoff right now is Turkey insisting on proceeding with this Russia deal over S-400 and, uh, and the U.S. having responded by saying, so you're out of the, of the program of the uh, F-35s, although Turkey formerly was a partner to this project and has uh, its industry involved in it in various ways. Uh, I think that uh, Donald Trump still hasn't fully given up the thought of persuading his friend Erdogan into abandoning it somehow, but it's linked to some of the many other aspects of US-Turkey relations and also Turkey-Russia relations. Um, but you have also the recent uh, launch of the pipeline connecting uh, from Siberian gas to European market through the uh, Black Sea. There again, an, another marker of, uh, uh, of increasing dependence. At the same time, Turkey is trying to negotiate uh, and balance relations with the US, although that agenda is full of problems as well, and also with, with the EU. So one can describe Erdogan's attempts to be one where it seeks uh, strengthening its own position by skillful, pragmatic balancing 
uh, acts between Russia and the US and, and the West generally. But generally, can one say that what we are talking about here, uh, when we talk about uh, Russia, uh, Turkey and the United States, is an increasingly transactional uh, uh, form of uh, diplomacy where you isolate certain issues that you can agree on without letting that affecting the overall relationship. But that is a way of saying also that the, uh, the, the link now between Turkey and NATO is uh, becoming rather complicated also because uh, NATO membership is uh, supposed to be, after all, much more than simply a transactional uh, ad hoc relationship. It's uh, much more of a belonging and there's an element of value-based permanence. Uh, and there have been many uh, uh, challenges to that. And the last uh, summit of NATO in London uh, it was skillfully, I think, handled by, by Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, because in the final declaration, no tensions were there, although Macron had been talking about uh, brain-dead uh, uh, NATO and, and, and the Turks tried to link NATO support for its position in Syria and uh, the Kurdish issue there to Turkish support for what NATO has been planning over the Baltics and, and Poland in the deterrence of Russia. So um, one will for, look forward to uh, interesting, uh, analytically interesting developments there also. Okay. So now you want to go over to Iran. Yes, if I may. And Iraq, if I may. There are uh, obvious links. Uh, so you had this... Uh, uh, fast developments uh, following uh, Donald Trump's decision after some closed circle deliberations uh, where the military side was presenting Donald Trump with the options because it had felt, uh, and I think uh, uh, Donald Trump had felt that I must do something forceful now in order to show that uh, the, the US will and ability to show deterrence to the, um, the power of Iran in the region and to be uh, uh, regaining trust among allies, Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc. Do something and the, the decision for by Trump was to choose the, the harshest one of the options presented to him, namely to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, which happened uh, to the surprise of most and without any notification uh, neither of Congress nor of allies as far as we know. Lindsey Graham was in Mar-a-Lago so he must have heard of it playing golf with with Donald Trump. But anyway, that uh, rather extreme action to take out uh, de facto number two a foreign country had all sorts of implications including uh, awaiting so what will be uh, the Iranian response to this uh, act of war, as it must be labeled also from a neutral observer. And uh, after three days of mourning, uh, the response came uh, as a ten-fold ten missile attack on, uh, on two bases, uh, one of them being Ain al-Assad in uh, uh, northern Iraq. Uh, so, and the attack on Soleimani was in Baghdad. So the problem with these developments, um, uh, other than to enhance and increase tension between US and Iran, was of course the way it did affect Iraq, uh, being squeezed in, squeezed in between 
Iraq being already squeezed between Syria and Iran, but now it is somehow physically exposed to being uh, squeezed also between the US and its regional might and Iran. And uh, political leaders in Iraq do not appreciate that. Now, the uh, Iranian response uh, became measured uh, in the sense of uh, not killing any American nor anyone else uh, for all the distance that uh, these missiles uh, caused. There probably was some kind of early warning because the Iranian side, need, the Iranian leadership needed to balance on the one hand uh, living up to pledges of revenge. Uh, because there were millions and millions of mourners in the streets of, of, uh, of the various towns, cities in Iran. But on the other hand, not overdoing it in such a way it would, could only provoke another round of U.S. counter-retaliation and then on and on, into all the way into full open war, which was uh, obviously unwanted by all. So brinkmanship here, and of course many questions in the U.S. now following, was it really an imminent threat as, as was claimed, which was just, would justify that the president could act uh, without consultation, prior consultation with at least the, the gang of eight in the U.S. Congress. And uh, if there was an imminent threat against what, uh, Trump says uh, embassies and uh, Esper says, uh, I heard of no embassies. So there is a lot of unclarity there, which makes it, I think, unfortunate uh, that these issues uh, and the uh, ensuing uh, demands and proposals in Congress to limit the war powers of the president, at least against Iran, uh, based on this experience that it co uh, coincides with the impeachment process and the electoral campaign. So there are many issues that are piled uh, on top of each other. For, for the uh, regime in Iraq, uh, already affected by the uh, enormous street demonstrations and everything, which has forced the Prime Minister Mahdi to, to announce resigning, but he is still the caretaker government. <coughs> the, uh, in response, to the very uh, demanding uh, demonstrations in Baghdad, which took many, many lives uh, to quell, uh, and the attack on the U.S. embassy uh, in response to the uh, attacks by the U.S. against another militia uh, killing 25. You had this uh, action-reaction process, very classical in its kind was a pledge to ask the U.S. kindly to leave militarily from from Iraq. And this is an, a, a big issue right now because the US has more or less said that, uh, or Trump has more or less said that if uh, the government uh, following up on a, on a day to do so, to ask the US to leave, then Donald Trump says there will be sanctions against Iraq, and that, of course, is another spiral. Uh, the US has uh, some five, six thousand troops. Uh, in Iraq, uh, on the basis which were mainly those bases that were hit, but there are also other countries' troops in in uh, uh, Iraq and in the coalition against ISIS, including uh, 70 Swedish troops uh, in on one of these bases for the purpose of training the Iraqi army uh, against ISIS uh, or the remnants of ISIS. Uh, the problem being there that uh, there is a, not only governmental instability in Iraq, but also 
instability concerning the status of the various militias uh, you have there. So you see a development in the in the links with leaving still many things uh, unthought through and unsolved, of course, but it shows the way the whole region is affected by the conflict between the, the U.S. and Iran, because it involves also U.S. allies, uh, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia and Emirates, and it involves the international community because we are all, or many, most of us, are involved in the anti-ISIS fight. And the, if, if the U.S. has to leave Iraq, then what happens to the rest of the coalition? Then what will be the the answer from Paris, from uh, from uh, the U.K. Uh, uh, in Brexit? At the times, and even frankly, uh, can we remain if the U.S. leaves? And by the way, what happens to the U.S. troops that uh, Donald Trump, in the end, after these uh, uh, wranglings over Syria, has still in Syria, in eastern Syria? Uh, there, there's uh, 600 troops there now, still cooperating with the Kurdish militia. So uh, you, you have a picture where all the sub-conflicts are linked and then a cloud of uncertainty hanging over those and enormous challenges also for Europe and for the EU. And, and if we did uh, try to summarize before a little bit the Russian situation, uh, this brings us, base, brings us basically towards the end of the podcast to the question about the United States. Because when we started our discussions a year ago, many people thought that uh, the United States was going out of the Middle East and that the pivot to Asia would finally take place. And, uh, and that uh, uh, this, is, uh, this was sort of a, a real assumption that one could base your planning on. Now what we see is a, is a, is a very erratic uh, uh, or transactional, uh, depending on how you see it, uh, uh, chain of events and actions on the US side, which makes it almost impossible to assume anything about the future. We also see from the Democratic candidates debating uh, tonight uh, uh, about, the, about the Middle Eastern situation that there, people are getting increasingly uh, incoherent, I would say, about uh, what to do. Uh, I also note with interest the fact that uh, once you, you have something serious building up, then uh, you see that uh, foreign deployment to countries like Iraq turn into uh, compounds with uh, force protection as the main as the main objective of the military presence, which of course is not anywhere close to the strategic autonomy that uh, at least uh, what has been uh, proclaimed as a goal by the French uh, president, to mention one example. So. On what level would Europe have to do something in order to really make a difference if, uh, if uh, even a presence of 15,000 UN troops in Mali cannot make a difference? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a really uh, a difficult uh, situation from a military perspective as well. Absolutely. May I add also, we, we mustn't forget the G uh, JCPOA, the, the nuclear, nu nuclear deal with Iran. The most recent development there uh, uh, is uh, that as a result of the American attack against Soleimani, Iran announced uh, another step in non-compliance, uh, but it uh, retains IAEA 
inspectors in place. So that's the very biggest situation. Now, uh, this, of course, uh, gives rise to enormous difficulties in the EU or, or the European, European US relation over this. Because after all, this chain of events uh, were more or less started, it can be stated credibly uh, by, the, uh, by the US decision to withdraw from that agreement. Uh, three foreign ministers, so UK, Germany and, uh, and France, uh, uh, wrote in a letter only the other day uh, to the various parties uh, that they uh, suggest now uh, invoking the, uh, the, um, the mechanism of settling disputes in, the, in that deal. And today I see in the press that uh, Russia is uh, heavily criticizing uh, them for such uh, putting in question the whole implementation process, believing that this will only provoke further difficulties. So you have this strange uh, situation with the U.S. Uh, acting as uh, as a non-member of that uh, deal, but with the U.S. Uh, but the EU, European countries insisting on on staying with that agreement together with Russia and China. It's a very odd uh, situation that would be hard, and this is highly relevant to the N NPT question, non-proliferation issues. And, and with my own uh, personal experience from the nuclear dossier over the last years, when I was investigating this on the part of, uh, on behalf of the Swedish government, I, I noted that uh, a year ago when we started this discussion uh, in this format, uh, still uh, in my own country and, and in our own country in, in many other countries in Europe, the main attention on the nuclear dossier was on the, on the role of the nuclear weapons powers and, uh, and, the, and the build up of uh, new uh, uh, Russian and American capabilities and the question of China and so on. But increasingly now we see that the attention is again turned towards the risk of a horizontal proliferation of nuclear weapons and uh, that we see that there could be a chain effect. Perhaps not in a, a number of new nuclear weapon states. That's not necessarily the going to be the case. But what we most likely can see, and I, I discussed that with Robert Einhorn from Brookings in a podcast just before Christmas, what we could see is a number of threshold states, uh, countries which are dangerously close to acquiring nuclear weapons, something which in turn will of course further enhance uh, tension and instability in, in uh, the Middle East and in other regions. And that would, that would be uh, creating a, a climate where uh, there are endless questions about so how much time will it take for this and this and this country to rush acquisition from, uh, from now and this is highly destabilizing. And it's also destabilizing for Europe, because in Europe people have tended to take the nuclear issue as something that you don't need to necessarily consider so much in, in your own defense planning. Uh, you, you focus on the conventional war. But what if we actually have others than the Russians and the Americans who are also threatening with, uh, with nuclear assets in a future potential conflict uh, involving the southern dimension of European security. So, shall we stop there? I think uh, we have uh, almost done our 45 minutes and we shouldn't be longer than that. I apologized again to our listeners for the sound quality, which is not up to the standard that we normally achieve, but uh, I hope still it was an interesting overview and, uh, and uh, 
giving a little bit of the state of play from our perspective. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you.